Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My guest is Dr. Richard Moxon, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics, founder of the Oxford Vaccine Group, and Fellow of the Royal Society. He's an internationally renowned scientist, highly regarded for his important work on bacterial meningitis. We discuss his experiences in medical research and the vital significance of vaccines and immunization on public health. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I try my best to bring you challenging conversation with well-informed people on subjects that appeal to me in the hope that they also appeal to you. And today, my subject has wide appeal, primarily because it's been thrust, and I use that word deliberately, thrust upon us over the past two years in a way that would, be, would have been hard to imagine if I was talking to you even three years ago. I'm talking about vaccines. My guest is an internationally renowned medical scientist in the field of bacterial meningitis. A pediatrician by first calling, he's devoted his professional career to saving the lives of children, mainly young children, for that is the group most vulnerable to this merciless of illnesses. Richard Moxon is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics and a Professorial Fellow of Jesus College at the University of Oxford. He's also a Fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences and a Fellow of the Royal Society, that august and learned institution dating back to 1660. His academic credentials are impeccable and too long to read out completely in this short program. But here's a taste. University of Cambridge, St. Thomas Hospital, London, Boston Children's Hospital, Johns Hopkins University, head of the Molecular Infectious Disease Group in the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine, one of the founding scientists of the Institute of Molecular Medicine. And during that time, he led UK trials on the Hib meningitis, or is it HIB? I'm sure you'll correct me on that, uh, Richard because he's been responsible for saving thousands of lives and preventing even more cases of brain damage. He set up the Oxford Vaccine Group, one of the largest university-based pediatric clinical trial units in the world. I'm sure that's a name that many of you know. Now, working in collaboration with Nobel laureate Hamilton Smith, my guest was one of the first to apply molecular genetics to infectious diseases and apply it to clinical practice, vaccine development, and public health. And in his Oxford laboratory, he pioneered the application of genome sequencing in vaccine development, a technology that resulted through the collaboration with U.S. and Italian scientists in a vaccine against menin meningococcal meningitis. That's not an easy word for a layman to pronounce. That is now a routine immunization for infants. He retired some years ago, but has continued to be involved in vaccine development, working on scientific advisory committees, teaching in international vaccine courses, and mentioning young scientists. Professor Moxon, Richard, welcome to the McKay interview. It's a privilege to meet you. I only wish that we could do this interview face-to-face, -face, but Zoom will have to do. Indeed. Richard. Thank you, Michael, very much for that very kind introduction. <laughs> it's good to meet you. Are you somewhere near Oxford or are you in an entirely different location? No, I'm actually right uh, in the centre of Oxford. Uh, our, our house is uh, barely seven minutes from the centre right. of, of the city. Yeah. Richard, you've, I've got lots of questions for you, so let me go very quickly into the first one. You've written many books, but your lucidly written book, Brain Fever, which you kindly sent me, which I've read, must have been drafted with people like me in mind, people with non-scientific backgrounds. But thanks to coronavirus, many 
In fact, too many of us have had a crash course since early 2020 in the vocabulary, if not the actuality of viruses and vaccines. So let me ask you to address the most serious, even lethal point first. What in simple language is the biology of a killer bacterial infection? Yes, well, let me start by saying that um, there's a lot of confusion and I'm afraid journalists uh, are uh, culpable uh, in understanding that two of the major killer pathogens, viruses and bacteria, are very, very different organisms. And I want to make that point because it's fundamental to understanding the approaches to preventing uh, viruses and bacterial uh, infections to know something about their biology. Viruses are a thousand times smaller than bacteria and they are absolutely dependent on being inside cells of living organisms to be able uh, essentially to survive. Whereas bacteria are quite capable of surviving on their own. Both viruses and bacteria find in living organisms a place where they can do the Darwinian imperative, which is to multiply, to keep themselves going because of the richness um, of the chemistry of, 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 of living organisms. So we start off with these differences, but then we converge because as I say, each viruses and bacteria and those that are unfortunately uh, are killers to us are really simply surviving. And to do that, they must multiply. Um, and then of course, we understand that organisms uh, are going to try to suppress um, uh, this um, uh, rampant uh, replication of these of, of these uh, uh, germs. Simply for, for self-preservation. For self-preservation. Yeah. So you've got a battle on. And uh, pathogens, which is the name for, you know, the organisms, the germs that kill us, that are very successful, um, are obviously the ones that uh, we, we are concerned about. Now, the killer part is obviously not the intention of the organisms. Um, it, it's something that, as I say, is simply Darwinian. But um, what happens um, is that the defense mechanisms of organisms that are infected must try, obviously, to get rid of something that is going to take them over. And the extent to which this happens is key to understanding the killer part of your question. Because our defense mechanisms may be successful and often are in clearing away germs. But sometimes the germs get the upper hand and then the immune system, as it's called, our defenses go into overdrive. This is more likely to happen to children than adults. It, it can happen in both. And yeah. actually children will often have relatively immature um, immune systems. And under those circumstances, paradoxically, it's older people with more mature immune systems that will have essentially the um, storm, the perfect storm of all of their defenses coming together to try and get rid of the mm. organisms. And it is this, it's called inflammation. Inflammation is what causes the disease 
and which unfortunately, as we've seen with the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and is true of bacterial meningitis, it's inflammation um, that causes the bodily damage and can lead to the lethality uh, of these germs. So if you will, our defense mechanisms are a two-edged sword. On the one hand, they're very necessary to keep us clear of germs, but when the germs get the upper hand, the defense mechanisms turn against us and actually injure our own bodies and even sometimes, I'm afraid, kill us. Okay, I've got two uh, related questions, but I'll separate them. And the second part of it sounds a little bit naive, so forgive me if it sounds naive, but I'll put it to you anyway. Proceeding from that, from what you've just said, how, how have vaccines been developed in the vocation that you've pursued throughout your professional life to prevent deaths and disabilities from it? What's been the process of development? I know, I know it's quite a long story. Yes, indeed. And in fact, it's important to sort of understand the, the background. How did the idea of preventing infections ever come about? And of course, it's biblical. Um, in, for example, uh, 430 uh, uh, years before the birth of Jesus Christ, BC, um, the plague of Athens, people realized that those who had become ill with the plague could now go and tend to the sick without getting sick themselves. Mm. They had some kind of what we call immunity. So the Greeks recorded this, they wrote it down. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, and um, moving many centuries ahead, of course, we get into the, um, the time of, of Jenner, who understood- Sorry, this is it Edward, is it Edward, Edward Jenner? Edward, Edward Jenner, Jenner? yeah, and he was an Englishman. Yeah. An Englishman, yeah. Um, a famous scientist yeah. who, uh, after years and years of understanding that people could do something to prevent um, smallpox, a dreadful disease, um, happened upon the idea that if he took um, a weakened form of the virus, the smallpox virus, and introduced it into the body, and he wrote all this down so that it was scientifically laid out, you could actually prevent smallpox. Yep. So this was Jenner's vaccine. He didn't understand what he was doing because people did not understand germs. And so we need germ theory with the illustrious Louis Pasteur, mm -hmm. Robert Koch, and a whole team of scientists in the latter part of the 19th century who realized that particular germs caused particular diseases. This is less than 150 years old. It's quite yeah. striking. Yeah. And Louis Pasteur's and laboratory was just an hour for drive from exactly, where I'm sitting now. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and so the notion came that if you understood what germs cause particular diseases and could then take a weakened form of the germ, it would induce immunity, it would induce protection, but it wouldn't harm the individual who yeah. received. And this was the fundamental um, breakthrough that led to so many vaccines in the early part uh, of, uh, of the 21st century. Um, <clears throat> uh, sorry, the 20th century. 20th century, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we know the listening from uh, tetanus and diphtheria and TB and polio. Uh, these transformed um, public health. Um, so but the basic principle is you need to know the organism you need to have 
a weakened form of it, or perhaps just a component of it, of which the coronavirus is a very good example. You don't take the whole virus or a weakened form of it, you actually take one part of the viral um, surface, the so-called spike protein. And this These is are things that we see sticking off, exactly. like a sort of, like a landmine. Right, but they're, the, but they're the, weak, the Achilles heel, because of course, our body's defenses can produce antibodies or proteins, which will attach and neutralize the virus. Ah, I see. And this is the basis uh, of vaccines. So most vaccines work by inducing proteins called antibodies that are able to fix, to attach to the germ and neutralize it. Well, now you started halfway down answering my second, which is the naive part of my question, Richard. Why do we really need vaccines? Aren't there other effective treatments out there? Well, there are. But look, the problem is <clears throat> that by the time you come to administer treatments, particularly with diseases, and, you know, coronavirus is a good example, but meningitis is another very good example. By the time you get to treat, damage has already been done, sometimes to the point where even with the most potent antibiotics, given after the disease has started, you are unable to save a life or uh, uh, just as important, uh, the disabilities that can come. So the, the key about vaccines, and there are two major points here, is they are preemptive. Mm -hmm. A vaccine means you never get the infection. And not reactive. And therefore, you do not have to sort of come in at a stage where the, um, uh, you know, the fire has started has spread, yeah. there's smoke inhalation, if you will, to carry the mm. analogy, you actually prevent the fire from happening in the first place. But the other really important thing that vaccines do is in addition to preventing infection in an individual, they also cut down and sometimes eliminate altogether person to person spread mm. of germs. And this means that if I receive a vaccine, I protect myself, but I can also protect others because I won't be spreading the germ to other people. And this is huge, hugely important. And we've seen this obviously in the pandemic. Gonna, those gonna, who receive the vaccine are not just protecting themselves. They are also cutting down enormously the risk to other people, because they will not be spreading. I want to put that to you in, a, in, in, in another question, but coming at it from a slightly different angle, Richard. But first of all, my guest today is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Richard Moxon, and we're talking about the killer infection meningitis and his invaluable work on vaccines. Richard, from what I've read and understood, just listening to you, from my own experience, I had a friend who lost his 18-year-old daughter as a result of meningitis. Meningitis attacks mainly children, but clearly in the case of my friend, it was a, an older teenager. So parents together with doctors, make decisions on behalf of the child or children. But what about adults who are ill and who would benefit from being injected with a vaccine? What has been your experience, Richard, of dealing with the thorny issue of self-interest or altruism versus what we've come to hear referred to over the past couple of years as herd immunity or community 
protection or put plainly in my simple language, me versus us. Yes, indeed. And, and this is obviously a, a hugely uh, complex issue. Um, the Hippocratic Oath <laughs> obviously um, you know, tells us that um, our abiding uh, uh, responsibility as doctors is to do what is best for our patient. Mm. It's a very highly individualized uh, idea. But public health is clearly um, going to see things through a slightly different and broader lens, which is what can we do that will not only protect individuals, but also the community. And it's a very, very difficult um, concept for people to take on board that in a sense, they are giving a vaccine to their child, or as you've pointed out, they're making the decision for themselves to take a vaccine, they are healthy. They are going to take a risk because no drug, no vaccine is without some side effects. They're going to take a risk when they haven't got any. I think it's fair to say that to qualify that, though, and say some people, I mean, I've never had a problem have being vaccinated, but I know others, people I know very well, who have a different point of view, but they're not in the majority. Indeed. Um, and, and that's very, very important, but we still have to deal with, obviously, the issue of vaccine hesitancy. Right. We may discuss that later. But now, you see, we get into this very uh, difficult territory of balancing the risk to an individual with the benefits, the public health benefits to the world in general. Yes. And let me give you a sort of very concrete example. Somebody takes a vaccine who lives, let's just say for the sake of argument in Asia, yeah. and who has going to be or is exposed to a virus, a virus that could spread and, and be lethal to many, many people. They get on a plane. Now, if they were immunized, they're not going to spread to the people on the plane. And when they get to where it is in London, San Francisco or somewhere else in the world, they are going to be very unlikely to spread an infection that they've been exposed to thousands of miles away. So here is the altruism issue. We are interconnected. Travel and all of the things that go on in the world mean that um, a, a germ that is in one part of the world can be across on the other side of the world in no time at all. We saw that with SARS. And, and, and so we have to take on board this interconnectedness and this responsibility that each of us has as individuals, which of course, in the case of adults, means that we have that responsibility on behalf of our children because they can be spreaders. Yeah. And there's a very good example of this. Um, with the pneumococcal um, vaccine, this is a form of, of, of a vaccine that prevents pneumonia. When we looked at the public health impact of that vaccine, it was given only to children. But when you looked at the data, thousands of people who had never received the vaccine were not coming down with pneumonia. Yeah. And this was because the vaccine was stopping the spread of the pneumococcus, the pneumonia causing bacterium from young children to adults. It's called community protection. And so the altruism comes in that we absolutely 
and increasingly so, as I say, with travel and the way in which um, our world, uh, uh, the global world has collapsed so that we're just a few hours away from any part of the world, we have a responsibility to understand. And indeed, some people, for reasons of their health, because they have cancer or they have problems with their immune system that is not their fault, cannot take vaccines. And yet they are- Yes, I'm aware of that, I'm aware of that, yeah. to something like measles, yeah. which can kill somebody who is under treatment for cancer. Um, and of course, they have to catch it from somebody. Yeah. And if that somebody is immunized and doesn't spread, then that is a huge, huge benefit to the community. I understand. Now, look, you're a, you're a very distinguished uh, medical doctor and scientist, and so obviously you have the 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 interest uh, of humanity in your hands on a day to day basis. But let, let's look at something from a slightly more human perspective than scientific. Tell me a story or two from your own experience, Richard, about of human nature, jealousy, envy, magnanimity kindness or even great personal courage that can affect outcomes in science? Yes, indeed. Well, I'd like to take one example, um, which shows um, sort of, in a sense, ambition, but, you know, vision. Vision. And come back to this again and again. Did there you say vision? Vision. Yeah. Scientists who see something, who see it very clearly when others don't see it. So the example I would have was actually my boss when I was um, a, a, a junior researcher uh, in Boston. His name was David Smith. He was a very distinguished pediatrician. He was an infectious diseases specialist and he became interested in developing one of the first um, uh, vaccines against meningitis. Well, at the time, industry simply was not interested in developing the vaccine because it had many technical complications and it was a high risk business venture. David Smith resigned his post as head of one of the most prestigious medical schools in the United States, Rochester Medical School, took his own personal savings, mortgaged his house mm. and set up a company that would do what he needed to be done that the big farmers and small farmers were unprepared to do. He went from an academic position with no background in business at all. People thought he was crazy, but with his drive, intelligence and vision, he saw something that was important and single-handedly changed the whole face of public health because the vaccine that he and his company developed was a huge success. You mentioned it earlier. It was the HIB vaccine. It's HIB, yeah. Standing yeah. for Hippopolis influenza yeah. type B, which nobody wants to have to stumble over. So it's just called HIB. So David Smith was a very good example to me of someone with huge courage, intellectual um, ambition, but above all vision. 
Okay, now the, sorry, that's good that you mentioned that because it's an instructive story. But now let me ask you another question, maybe about where you spent most of your professional life as a, as a, clinic, a clinical scientist with a, with a medical background. You mentioned in your book the challenges of clinical trials, and I'm just curious to know what those challenges might be. I mean, surely, Richard, it's just a process requiring patience combined with insights and a dose of good luck, or am I spouting the heresy of the ignorant? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> clinical trials, um, you know, in concept uh, are, are pretty easy. Uh, the, the problem is that the complexities that creep in uh, are that in order to do these clinical trials, you have got to have a very, very substantial infrastructure to be able to carry them out. And it is a very complex process. First of all, you've obviously got to have a convincing case that the vaccine under development is going to be worth essentially all of what will be taken to go through hundreds of thousands of people eventually uh, to, to do the trials. Um, and that requires an infrastructure of experts uh, to be able to administer the vaccines, to engage with the public, uh, to get the funding. Um, and all of this, you know, sounds very mundane and, and kind of banal, but actually, as Sarah Gilbert mentioned in her um, address in the uh, Dimbleby lecture, believe it or not, in the midst of the pandemic, her biggest problem was raising sufficient funds to be able to take their vaccine to the point where there was enough of it to be able to carry out the clinical trials that were needed, without which we wouldn't have had the AstraZeneca vaccine. So Richard, you've brought me very nicely to my last question, which is about money. Um, you use the word funds. I, I, I just wanted to ask you about investment in scientific research. It seems vast I mean, to ordinary members of the public like me, whether from the private sector or from governments, which essentially means the taxpayer, people like you and me. But how do you, how do you assess what is cost effective? How many blind alleys must people like you run down before you can shout bingo or even eureka? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, um, one part of this obviously has to do with um, the idea of blue skies research. We are all familiar with the fact that taking ideas, sometimes seemingly crazy ideas, is where science moves forwards. But of course, if you are funding a lot of things which don't work out, people are going to say, this is pretty inefficient. Yeah. So there's the argument of the huge importance of supporting basic science or blue skies research, because those revolutions, if you will, though they are rare, are what drive science forward. But then on the, the other side of things, you've got um, the uh, huge investment that is needed to be able to maintain the infrastructure of science uh, in the applied area. Um, and this, of course, covers such things as clinical trials. And I've been through the, the mill, you know, of being in a situation where I could see very clearly um, in Oxford the need uh, for investment in the infrastructure that built up the Oxford Vaccine Group, for example. 
But, you know, it was a really, really tough um, challenge because people were always saying, well, what if it doesn't work? Or what if the money goes in and the university becomes liable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is always going to be a really, really tough challenge, how to keep science moving forwards at a time when there are huge, uh, there's huge competition uh, and uh, prioritization of people's money. It's very understandable and it should be, uh, in, in my view, it should be a, a challenge, but it's something that uh, any scientist who's been involved in translational work is going to be very familiar with. And I can tell you the frustrations are absolutely enormous. <laughs> Richard, Richard, thanks so much you, for your clear and your patient answers to these complex issues. We've run out of time. My guest today has been Dr. Richard Moxon, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics and founder of the Oxford Vaccine Group. Richard, thank you again. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.